Hello, Valparaiso. This is Allison Schutte and Willow Walsh, and you're listening to Welcome Project Radio. The Welcome Project collects first-person stories and pairs them with facilitated conversation to help participants forge stronger ties within and across communities. We vision a world in which people are curious about and actively seek to engage those who are different from themselves. We are proudly underwritten by Asana Yoga Center and Roots Market Cafe, two excellent ways to feel good during a pandemic. They're located online at asanacenter.com and rootsmarketcafe.com. Theme music is provided by WVLP's very own Paul Schreiner. Thanks, Paul. Today we bring you two stories from the Welcome Project's Flight Paths Initiative. So today we'll play Fascinated by the Steel Mills and Here on Earth to Help Each Other. And so the Flight Paths Initiative is actually one of three branches of the Welcome Project. The initiative combines storytelling, history, geography, and conversations about neighborhood life to explore the changing racial and economic demographics of Gary and Northwest Indiana. Um, particularly beginning with the rise of black political power and opportunity in the 1960s and the flight of white residents and businesses to the suburbs and the automation and consequent underemployment of the steel mills, the latter which we'll primarily be focusing on today. Yeah, it's kind of fun because we've never taken it on as a topic for the show. Mm -hmm. And it was not the first focus of the Flight Paths Initiative when we started interviewing people. We were really more interested in neighborhoods and when people stayed, why they stayed, and when they left, why they left. So it's good to have this attention um, to the steel mills and to thinking about environment more broadly. Uh, We could use a little more of that attention (laughs) in our lives these days as we face climate crisis, so. For sure. So, okay, so today on the show, we're going to go ahead and play these stories, and then we're going to pause in between each to have a conversation about what the storytellers tell us. And so first up, uh, our speaker talks about his experience growing up in Gary around the steel mills, and this is Fascinated by the Steel Mills.
So are there specific details that linger for you <laughs> or stick with you? Yeah, so, okay, so I, right off the bat, I kind of noticed this sort of, like, duality and how he's, like, kind of recounting the steel mills because he's, like, you know, like, the sound is incredible. They had this tremendous booming. So it's this sort of, like, I don't know, all of these elements, like, even the soot flying into the windowsills and you have to, like, you know, you can put your finger on the sill, like, an hour later and there's, like, still soot there. It's, like, I don't know. He's, like, sort of, like, captivated by it in yeah. a way. But then also, like, recognizing that, like, you know, the river caught on fire a few times. So it's, like, kind of, like, I know this is bad, but it's also, like, it's, like, this sort of, like, grotesque thing that you can't stop looking at. So, I don't know. For me, it was just, like, I, I can't necessarily, like... I don't know, easily sum up his sentiment towards the steel yeah, mills right. because you want it to be something that's so easy, like you either love it or you hate it. But I don't know, I think he offers like a more complex take, which is like, yeah, it's this like huge, crazy, loud thing. But also, I mean, it's doing terrible things to our neighborhood. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like because he's remembering being a kid at the time, he doesn't probably experience it as that... Well, he doesn't have the concept of, like, this is bad for me. Mm-hmm. You know, like, am I assuming the person who was taking care of the laundry that was getting dirty every time was, like, really frustrated and pissed off and just, like, how am I, how am I supposed to do this? Um, but I feel like the kid, it's more just, like, a description. This was my life. Even the river catching, it caught on fire a few times. <laughs> it's just delivered somewhat deadpan Mm. um so yeah i think it's it's so uh easy for us maybe from our perspective um where like no no who would want this in their backyard Mm -hmm. because it's like across the street you know and nobody nobody would want this in their backyard today so it's really hard for us to imagine a kind of i don't know just it's not ease exactly but it's just like you know the way things were mm-hmm. this is the way things were it, it makes me think of like like the great gatsby when it's talking about like all this industrialization but it's like described in a way that's really like i don't mm. know it's really alluring like it's yeah. like it's like i don't know it's like i i get the same sense from him and i think he does like a really good job because it's like when i drive by the steel mills it's like this miniature city especially at night when there's like all of these like lights everywhere and there's like flames coming up it's just like it's like it's a sight to behold but at the same time yeah I think he kind of goes back and maybe thinks about the effects of it a little bit more but I don't know it's kind of like the way he describes it now it's like still like he's like there's this blue haze that goes Mm -hmm. over the neighborhood and it seems like this like cool fog even though it was probably something really awful (laughs) Yeah, it's like has this epic nature to it. I mean, he even references um, the Green Lantern, you know, and superheroes when he and his friends, you know, trespass. And I feel like I've, um, along along with your example from The Great Gatsby, um, Tim O'Brien and The Things They Carried talked about war with that same, like, he would talk about the beauty of the 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 fight um, with the bullets flying and whizzing. And it's just like the... um, 
um, not doing it justice at all because it was like he's such an amazing storyteller that you're constantly aware of the wounding that's happening both to the characters that you started to care about as well as people just caught up in the war um, and yet the the awesome quality of this thing that's so much bigger than you still can carry this sort of rapture and it's it is a very odd the underground railroad which is um a novel um that's being made it's been made into a miniseries for prime i think um when they were talking about that recently on npr it sounds like the cinema or director cinematographer had like something similar in mind where there's this element of of um i don't even know if beauty is the right word um that's a part of life then not necessarily the actual like worst parts of being enslaved but um just trying to really capture sort of on the ground everything and that does include like we can't we can't minimize our experience to only the horrible like we have to also include Hmm. these other aspects um so it's interesting. I don't know. I never would have come to the steel mills that way before without this storyteller. Do you think, um, I don't know. It's like knowing the effects of it later, like maybe the pollution and things. It's like, we know that, you know, if you're living near that, you can get high rates of cancer or asthma or things like that. Do you think he, if he could like do it over again, he would hope that the steel mills weren't there or do you think it like provided this like I don't know integral experience yeah I mean I don't know based on this story alone I would have to say I I don't know that he seems to regret this experience this set of experiences it's sort of has defined him in some way, marked his childhood in very specific concrete concrete ways that make it his. So I don't know, like, how would he even begin thinking about it being different? Like, that would, like, he would be different. So, mm-hmm. um, I, I don't know, but did you have a different I, take? I think about this, like, sometimes, like, in the context of, like, I don't know, like, I think specifically about, like, older folks who are, like, kids these days on their iPads and, you know, it's like they don't understand what it's like to, you know, go out and play on your bike type of thing. Like, I don't know, this sort of like, uh, this sort of, I don't know, difference that you could have in terms of like growing up around these like captivating steel mills that you're biking around and, you know, getting like chased out by police type of thing. And I I don't know, it's like part of me wonders, it's like, sure, the, the steel mills aren't that way anymore obviously there's gates and things but is there I don't know just because we've lost the way that the steel mills operate today or some of this like pollution or blue haze or soot on the windowsills do we are we so removed from that experience like I guess what I'm saying is like once they put all these restrictions on the steel mill it's just like can kids still grow up with that same sort of like awe-inducing like feeling towards their environment yeah, yeah, I want to talk about that. Um, you're listening to WVLP, and this is Welcome Project Radio uh, with Allison Schutte and Willa Walsh. And on Listen Up today, we're playing stories from uh, the region, uh, memories of the steel mills in particular, and how this first storyteller is remembering being a kid and growing up right across the street um, and has this very vivid 
um, sense sensory memory of, of what the steel mills was like. And so we're wondering is something lost Hmm. with the cleanup? And that was, that was definitely one of my questions too. Like, I, I, like, of course it's better for the environment and the, and, and, and the humans that we have these restrictions now, but, um, there's something, the, the absolute presence makes it recede. And I, and I think like even environmentally, there's a loss there or, or not environmentally, like, but the pressure to continue to make sure that this industry is not polluting um, kind of recedes because the the absolute presence isn't just like in your face all the time. But I think something socially was probably lost too. I keep thinking about the the bell or the whistle mm-hmm. um, that mm-hmm. blows at at eight in the morning, four and midnight, and I mean that's like he's he was thinking like ten thousand people basically at each shift change and. I mean, that's a small town. It's bigger than some small towns. It's it's bigger than Valparaiso University. Um, it's about the size of some state universities, smaller state universities. So that's like this immense, like, uh, cultural moment, mm-hmm. you know, like the shift change. And I think I can only imagine, like, having that shared experience together as a city, uh, even it, it provided something some kind of connection to each other, even though we know from our other stories that there was a lot of conflict between people around race or like labor versus management or other um, parts of the city, maybe like the downtown versus like the working class. So, you know, it wasn't like they had this idyllic community or anything, but still to have that real shared, this is the time. This is, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, who's coming on and who's going off. This is how the uh, bars fill up or the restaurants or, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, were there other things you noticed that maybe were lost by, I don't know, cleaning up, minimizing, <laughs> putting up fences? Well, yeah, I mean, it's like, I mean, I think part of that too is like maybe some of it is like the automation. And I think, you know, and what you're talking about, like this, like, you know, the shift change and going out to the taverns and restaurants and things, you know, this was like a time when like the people who were working in the mills were living in Gary or living in these cities and not necessarily, yeah, walking home and not necessarily like, you know, getting in a car and driving 40 minutes to like Valparaiso. And so I think it's like, I don't know, it's like, it's easier for me to see, you know, the effect that this sort of like change in time, change in automation, you know, fewer people working at the steel mills, like what that has done just to the community. Because you're thinking like, okay, so all the restaurants that are serving lunch or that are open 24 hours or these bars and taverns, it's just like, you know, that's just not possible to, to have that, you know, same amount of people coming in. And so I think that's just like, I don't know, in my mind, that's like one tick against this idea that it's just like the people currently living in Gary are the ones responsible for Gary. Mm. When it's like, how could you see that there's 30,000 people at this plant going into the, you know, local economy and spending their money? So I don't know. So I think it's like, that's something that's lost too, is just like the, like the local economy. But I, I don't know. I think there's also like something that's lost is like, I 
think too, like you're, you kind of touched on this sort of like shared experience. Like if you're all like 10,000 of you are walking out, you're going to bars and taverns. It's like, yeah, I was on this floor today or I was doing this with the steel. You know, there's like some sort of like shared thing that can kind of bind you together. And so I wonder that too about the, like the effects that they have, like the sort of like the soot that's coming into the steel mills. And it's just like, well, yeah, you know, like I can imagine, you know, all these one story houses like in Gary that, you know, you're kind of on top of everybody's backyard. And so it's not just you having this problem where you're, you know, putting up your laundry and like soot is all over it. It's like mm-hmm. all of your neighbors, right? So you're just like, oh yeah, I cleaned the windows again today. Or like I had to take in the laundry again today. Like something that kind of like binds you together a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think it like, it, it kind of, like, tears away at some of these, like, you know, like, social connections that we don't necessarily have today. You know, it's just, like, a lot of our speakers, like, who talk about flight paths, and specifically, like, in the neighborhood that they're in, um, they think about, like, you know, well, everybody on my block was a middle-class worker in the steel mills. So it's just, like, I think it's just, it's these, like, small things that kind of, like, bound this community together in just ways that they they know that they can relate to one another and I think we're losing that a little bit you know especially like you know it's like I hardly know all the time like who my neighbors have been in my life and it's like we don't have those same sort of connections that bring us together I also think about like barn raising this idea that like Mm -hmm. you know you have to depend on your neighbors to like endure things so like, the example from the book is that, like, they, they needed their neighbors, you know, to build this barn together. You know, they didn't necessarily like their neighbors, but they <laughs> needed them, right? So it's just, like, I think about, like, you know, enduring that same sort of, like, dealing with those environmental pollutants. Like, you kind of, I don't know, need to depend on one another more, possibly. I don't know. So I'm just thinking of, like, all these, like, little ways that this, like, this cleanup, which is overall good for the environment, but it's just that it's kind of, like, torn away at the community a little bit, which is, like... I don't know what to do with that information. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we have other examples of that too that are equally hard. So I've thought about this with some of our black storytellers when um, the black community was more or less um, only able to live in Midtown or the Central District. Um, They talk a a lot about how they're living uh, like in terms of socioeconomic status and like occupation, like everybody's living together all mixed up. So It's not based on class. And some of our storytellers talk about how I knew I could be X or Y or Z because I lived with people that were X, Y, and Z, like school teachers, factory workers, um, postal employees, teachers. I don't know if I said teachers twice, Um, but I think I'm thinking about school too because when um, black kids were in predominantly black classrooms with black teachers, especially at like Roosevelt, Uh, There was this immense amount of support and nurturing of those students. And you hear some of our residents talk about being bused to like Glen Park and like everything that they know about education becomes combative and and potentially they're even going to be um, invisible to some of their teachers. That might even like be the nice thing that a teacher does is like ignore a black student. so I remember asking one of our storytellers, like, is something lost when segregation <laughs> actually ends? And I, I mean, I think she understood the, yes, there's that sense of community that's lost, but for her, you know, you, you need to be able to have that, that freedom and that opportunity. Um, 
So I, I don't, I don't really know though, like how, um, it, it, then it becomes, you can't actually weigh benefits and losses. Exactly. You just have to talk about both at the same time and aspire to have like good, indus- good, clean industry that doesn't poison its community, whether that's the environment or the people and, um, uh, employment and some, I, I, some kind of way of, of seeing yourself sharing common ground as a community. That last part, I think, I don't know that, I just don't think you can manufacture that. I feel like we've lost, we, we just lost that. And the digital, our digital lives, you know, just exacerbates that. So I'm not sure what we can do about, about that, but just to hold it as a loss and recognize, recognize it. Um, I don't know, maybe some people are finding ways to actually fight back but it has to be very intentional right like Mm -hmm. that's the Mm -hmm. thing about these stories it wasn't intentional the common experience wasn't intentional Mm -hmm. it was given Mm -hmm. so like I think about that too it's like I like these sort of like fibers of like you know going at the taverns together or like having people in your neighborhood that that you know and can relate to it's just like these are the, the, the the easy ends for interaction And I wonder, too, like, I mean, you talked about, like, the digital thing, but I also wonder, like, you know, if you if you lose some of those things, you don't necessarily know, like, where your neighbors are working or, you know, we we, there's like a lot of like, I don't know, capitalist like individualism that like really makes you want to like do everything yourself. So you don't necessarily ask for help from your neighbors anymore. And so I think it's just like we're losing all of these like common fibers that make us easier to connect. And so I wonder, like if what's lost is just those like common fibers that just it's like an easier avenue to connect with your neighbors and like community members but I think it's just what we have ahead of us is like learning to make those connections like you said like you know just being in the same you know city or same neighborhood you know that's not necessarily intentional so I think it's just like what we have to shift to is this intentionality like you know especially in the digital age when we can connect with so many people outside of our community like we have to like bring that intent back in and I think that's just like for so long and like who we've been in like America and like in our neighborhoods and like working for factories and things it's just that's something that I I just I would suspect we're not tuned into as a society like how do we create that intention and I think like it requires like more vulnerability right Mm -hmm. because it's like if you know nothing about your neighbors it's just like you don't have that in right like you don't have you know oh hey I saw you coming home from the steel mills today or like oh hey how was the you know drive over from so and so it's like so it's like you kind of have to like kind of put yourself out there a little bit more and I think it's a little bit more uncomfortable so I think that's what I feel like we're maybe battling is just like those sort of underlying threads that kind of connect us aren't so apparent anymore or like aren't there like lost with the you know the booming steel mill and so I think that's I think that's the hard part right because it's like I'm uncomfortable doing that I can't imagine like how many other people would just it's like you know you just kind of have to have to start something with with this the I guess there are like foundations that we're losing yeah sort of like common ground yeah um the other example that I think of is um in media, so we could talk about it in terms of the canon if we're thinking about English literature. But I think, like with media, like the three television channels that used to you know, used to be 
all we could tune into. And so everybody knew Walter Cronkite, you know, and we were getting the same news um, and getting the same like primetime shows. But like that reflected a very, very particular entry point into life. And it also reproduced a particular entry point that like maybe wasn't even available. So I'm thinking of like, you know, white middle-class families in the suburbs, but probably life for even all white people in the suburbs wasn't exactly what was reflected on the TV, either in news media or in the like primetime shows. So it sets up this kind of false Mm -hmm. shared experience, which this is not like the steel mills here in this story are not false for (laughs) whatever else they might be. You know, there's nothing fabricated about it. It's, um, it's elemental in some ways. So most of the time in circles that I'm in, um, people are grateful for the way that media has proliferated or the canon has um, been forced to expand and make room for voices that have been underrepresented far, far, far too long, whether that's by race or nationality or gender or sexuality. Um, And yet it has also created this dimension where we don't always know what the other person is going to refer to. And with social media and filter bubbles and algorithms, that's like, again, evolved into this further separation um, where what was common experience, like we can't even agree on reality anymore. And that's super scary. And I, yeah, I think we're really struggling with how as I don't know if it's Americans or human beings um, that we're going to react to that, respond to that. Because I think, well, at least again, from my side of the table, like the liberal progressive side, we find it problematic (laughs) that we don't have a shared reality, that we can't call something fact or science and agree on that Mm -hmm. anymore. So I just really think that we're struggling at this point to figure out how to live in this new, uh, like, granular Mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, too, it's like, I almost, I feel like the idea is that, I don't know, it's like we're not going to go back to, like, a Walter Cronkite era. Like, I don't see, like, these, I'm thinking, like, MSNBC, like, Fox News, like, just having these alternate sort of, like, streams of information, like, I don't see that coming back into one. Yeah, no. And so it's just, like, how do we, like, what do we do in between, like, how do we make that sort of, you know, difference up? Because... I don't know. I I think about like sometimes I watch like you know like videos online and I I watched one yesterday where um a fire hydrant like somebody had backed their car into a fire hydrant and um it like popped off and like the water's just shooting out at the corner and the the fire department couldn't stop and so this guy got out in his swim trunks and he's just like playing in the water this like 30 something dude and like the, these like neighbors come out and they're all in their swim trunks like following this guy out and they're like playing in the fire hydrant and I was like that's awesome right it's like that's that's the sort of like thing that like can kind of like 
bring us together in like a positive space like outside of these bubbles because it's just you know something fun like a fire hydrant going off but it's just like like I don't know the thing I worry about is just like you know we don't I don't know the opportunities for that don't happen very much and so it's just like you know I mean like a fire hydrant or like a cute puppy walking you know it's just like something that we can kind of grab hold of I think about like for me specifically and I think like a lot of like Gen Z people too have like a lot of social anxiety because it's just like you know I I think about all the ways that like interactions with other people especially if you're vulnerable could go wrong could Mm. like you know hurt could you know it's just you know leave a bad taste in your mouth and it's just so it's just like it's easier to avoid those sorts of things like those sorts of interactions with people because it's like well I don't know if they don't care about my basic human rights so I don't want to (laughs) interact with them And so, (laughs) so it's like, I don't know. It's like, that's where I find myself torn. It's like, yeah, I don't know. It's like having these like tiny small moments, but also being like super afraid to go beyond these small fun moments, like a broken fire hydrant. And then like, you know, talk to somebody in the grocery store or like make a joke with somebody like on the street. It's just like, I don't know. It's just like, what's looming over me is like, this could go wrong. But it's just like, I mean, I think that's for me, like from my you know, sort of progressive queer point of view. It's just like, how could this hurt me? And I think maybe like from the conservative side, it's just like, you know, like, oh, I, I have to think of like, you know, what's PC or like, what can't I say? Or like, am I going to say your pronouns wrong? Or like something like that. Like these sort of like fears of like the unknown or like being called racist or being called like homophobic, you know, it's just like, like that sort of looming. So I don't think it's just a progressive side too. I think there's like a conservative like feeling of like, I can't necessarily talk to you or, or do something because I don't want you to think that I'm a certain person. And so and there's just these forces that kind yes. of like continue to separate us yes. and make it harder, harder. So I don't know. That's, that's what worries me is just as we, as we kind of like grow beyond, you know, this sort of like industrial neighborhoods, like how are we, how do we do that? Yeah. <laughs> Um, this is WVLPLP at 103.1 FM in Valparaiso. You're here with Allison Schutte and Willow Walsh. And today on Listen Up, we're discussing steel mills and every place that that leads us. Um, so the stories we're, today are from the, the Flight Paths Initiative, which is our regional Northwest Indiana initiative. And um, we, we thought it would be really fun to focus on the storytellers who are commenting on, on the mills and their memories of the mills and um, thinking about how that has played such a fundamental role in the social life of neighborhoods, as well as um, thinking about the impact on the environments. So, um, I don't know, should we go ahead and play the second story for the day? And then we can always loop back to this first story. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So I think with this one, the speaker is a little less on the edge in terms of <laughs> not sure how to feel about it. I think she definitely has a feeling of um, what she thinks of the steel mills. This is Here on Earth to Help Each Other. Always. Whenever you spoke of Gary, people said, oh, the mill, because that's why people came to Gary. Joe Chapman, when he got to working in the Urban League, he found two, three people he met from England. And then another person was from Germany, that they wanted to come to see what was happening with this mill and why they would be producing so much steel and how they did it. 
And that's why they came. Now, Joe Chapman was Louise's husband. Uh, Louise was a friend of my, uh, my sister-in-law. Joe and his family, Louise, wanted me to come to help her move her family. I don't know how we're going to move all of our stuff and the children and I've got, we, we can't pay her, but maybe I, we can give her a little money and she can run over to see Chicago. And that did it when she said, Chicago, oh boy. Now about 1943 or 44, that's where we made that trip. And when we came into Gary, we were coming up Fifth Avenue. I looked out the car window and there was tumbleweed blowing down the street. I said, this looks like the Wild West. I could see these sand hills that were between buildings. And, and I said, and it's so flat. I said, people had houses, but nobody had a house over two stories. And then I found out that everyone wanted to come to Gary because there was a mill. The people that Louise's husband knew took us for a trip to go down Broadway. And then he took us all the way down so we could see the gates to the mill and realize what it was and why people kept wanting to come to Gary. In the old days, the mill would take the huge molten steel and dump it directly into the lake. These were the days before EPA. And all of that wonderful, pure, wonderful water in Lake Michigan was being contaminated. And when that hot steel hit the water, boom, you could hear it past the borders of Gary. It was loud. I cringed. I said, I don't like it, you know. I tell you what I did like. I learned about the South Shore. I could relate to the South Shore because it looked so much like the streetcars that, that were in St. Louis. When I got on that South Shore, I looked out the window and there were some trees. And then past that canal, you could see pheasant. And I knew they were pheasant because my grandmother told me how the beautiful feathers that they had. You could see the colors of their feathers as they would flying through these trees but then they were soon lost and gone because whatever they were throwing into the mill were frightening the birds and so they left. I'm an old lady. I don't know when God will call me home, but as long as I can talk with young people, at least let them know that we are here on earth to help each other but we must do it in a good way so that we don't destroy our earth. Our earth is beautiful. We must try to find a way to keep it. And in our keeping and taking care of our earth, we can take care of each other too. This is WVLP, and you're listening to Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio, with me, Allison Schutte, and Willow Walsh. And we just heard from a storyteller, our oldest storyteller that we've interviewed to date, um, about her memories of moving to Gary from St. Louis, and specifically her impressions of the steel industry, and some of her lamentations for the damage that was done to the environment by, by that industry. 
So, I mean, my question would be, like, what, like, what is her impression of Gary at this time? Like, she's talking about, like, 43, 44. Like, how does she see Gary? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I don't know what St. Louis would have looked like in the mid-century, but I feel like that city must have been much, much more <laughs> established than Gary was. Um, she seems like she's going back in time. You know, she talks about the tumbleweeds and, like, sand between buildings, and there's nothing above two stories tall. So I f- think she was underwhelmed. <laughs> um uh and certainly you know chicago in her mind has this like um real power over her imagination and i think in contrast gary looks either like podunk or like industrial or just underdeveloped um minus her experience when she gets on the south shore train line and has that view from the from the the train windows um yeah so yeah, I and I I think her impression of the mill is, it share it ha- has some features of our first storyteller who, um, if you tuned in late, remembered very explicitly like the sounds and the smells and the textures and she has something of that here too where she's remembering the hot steel hitting the water with that oh. <laughs> um, so there's still this epic quality of the steel mill, but it doesn't quite have the same, doesn't leave the same impression, mm-hmm. I would say. Yeah, I think it's interesting because, like, our storyteller, like you mentioned, like, he said, like, yeah, the river caught on fire three times, like, kind of deadpan. <laughs> but it's interesting to me that it's, like, it doesn't necessarily feel like she's reflecting on, like, you know, you know, the big sounds of, like, the molten steel hitting the water and, like, you know, everything that that caused in the water, you know, she's not saying years later, like, oh, now I realize that's bad. It, it sounds like here, she was like, it was, it was loud. I didn't like it. Like she, she knew that at the time that she didn't like it. So I think that's another, I don't know, interesting difference between our storytellers too. Like she noticed right away that it was like, this was something that I didn't appreciate right away. <laughs> yeah. And I think, coming you know being an outsider is part of that and I'm also I I happen to know from her other parts of her interview she was not in a family that was doing mill work in St. Louis you know she was coming out of a family of like preachers and teachers so um I think having that like like being detached from the experience of that kind of labor also makes it strange and something like that you would be like ooh. Mm -hmm. This is, this is disorienting. It's, it's like ugly. Um, it's like botching the scenery kind mm-hmm. of thing. I wonder too, like, she talks about, um, what I think is really funny because I just can't imagine it in my mind's eye, which is like, like Gary being like the wild west. Yeah. Like I'm trying to imagine this, like Gary at this time. And I'm thinking like, could this be like Couts? But then I'm like, Couts has more buildings than that. Mm. It's like, could this be like Wanata or Lowell? It's like, no, they have bigger. It's just like, I, it's it's so crazy to me to imagine like Gary as a sort of like Wild West, not having anything, you know, around. But she does notice like, you know, when she goes on the South Shore, she's talking about like the pheasant that she could see. And for her, that, that feels like a really positive thing because she knew from her grandma that they were pheasant. So she really enjoyed seeing them. And so she kind of, you know, thinks about, you know, 
with the mill being there, the pheasant aren't there anymore, and kind of the impact this is having. I don't know, I just wonder, like... Yeah, I mean, I think, for me too, it's hard to imagine Gary as having tumbleweeds. Um, so I'm thinking, if this is 43-44, and Gary was founded in, in 1909, so we're talking 35 years old as a city, which is pretty young still... Um, and yet this is not that many years before our storyteller from the first story. So I think some of it must depend on like which neighborhood you were in. Um, and it's also interesting, like which part of, um, Gary was she talking about with the tumbleweed? She mentions Fifth Avenue. So, you know, that's running parallel to the lake, right? So, um... And the fact that the sand dunes are poking up between buildings makes me think of Miller, you know, because you can go to some places on Miller Beach and and kind of and see that Mm -hmm. actually still. So I I think that the like, just imagine if the interstates weren't there. You know, like Mm -hmm. there's so much development that has happened on top of that area. So it's it's hard for us to think backwards but i th- i think if you just don't have the that that freeway system there even the the power of the dunes <laughs> to kind of keep moving in and encroaching because they were pushed back right that was swamp that was turned into industry so um yeah you could kind of feel the environment fighting back a little bit there maybe even and that's not how she's talking about it but there is a sense of that at this at this time. I think too, it's like I, I don't know, like the I think about like the dangers of putting all of your eggs in one basket because yeah. I think about like you know all of the industrialization. Like yeah, like I it's like it's hard for me to imagine like in forty four, like parts of Gary or like Miller could be like tumbleweeds, and then like you know what is that like thirty years later? That's when Mayor Hatcher is elected, and that's like right like the height of Gary. Like that's all of these downtown buildings, and so it's just like so much grew in so little time. And I don't know for me that just reminds me of um like all of the condos that are happening downtown. Oh yeah, <laughs> like, just growing so big so fast, and that doesn't feel ever like it's like it's gonna be a good thing. But I don't know. That's just what it reminded me of. Yeah, I mean, we're we're right at the turn of the boom that followed World War II in this story, you know? So that was so much of what um, allowed Gary to grow and prosper in the way that it did. Um, and same for the other industrial cities that had the same kind of experience of flight and deindustrialization that ended up really decimating the Rust Belt cities. Um, yeah, so I think it is worth remembering not to put all your eggs in one basket. I don't know how you see that at the time necessarily, although if we use your analogy of the city of Valparaiso, (laughs) I feel like there are voices that are trying to tell our Republican government, like, you know, maybe you better be thinking about community more broadly than just like this economic, um, uh, real estate a possibility that like cannot like how long will that last mm-hmm. maybe like I don't know maybe they're thinking out of their lifetime it, it can last but beyond mm-hmm. that I, I don't know mm-hmm. but we're not good at this as Americans thinking future Lee mm-hmm. and maybe human beings aren't um, very great at it either although I feel like there's other cultures that have had as part of their ethic 
you know, like to think seven generations <laughs> forward, um, that might make some different decisions than if we were not just thinking about 20 years down the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, not to throw shade, but I also think about when we do create sort of community spaces in Valparaiso, thinking specifically about, is it Jefferson and Michigan? There's like that new park across from the library. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I don't know. I just like Erica and I were so excited because we were like, oh, my gosh, they're going to like create like a park here over this parking lot. And then we went past it. and We're like, oh, my gosh, this is like a concrete jungle. Yes. (laughs) I'm not going over there. Yeah, I've heard other residents make that same same or similar comment. So didn't quite get that right. Yeah. Um, at least for some of the residents. Uh, I don't know, as we think about, like, you know, in the first Storyteller, we're talking about, like, you know, when, as we're losing some of these foundations, as we're losing some of, like, the ways that we can relate to one another, it's like these community spaces, like, are just, like, you know, spaces to just encounter one another become so important. So I don't know, for me, it's like, it kind of amplifies the frustration when it's just like, like a concrete slab over this parking lot. <laughs> it's just like, but it could have been so much better, you know, because it's like, if we invest in these spaces, you know, then we can have, I don't know, more of a draw because I don't know, I talk about this with, you know, our friend Reagan all the time. And she's like, you know, she lives in Warsaw. And she's like, all of the community spaces around me are church-based. She's like, if you want to go into a community space, she's like, it's all churches. All the food drives, everything, the homeless shelter, it's all based out of churches. And so, you know, you have that, I mean, you have a similar thing happening in Valpo. I mean, a lot of open spaces and there's a lot of churches around here. But it's like, it it really, you know, it becomes so important to have this sort of like non-religious entity that is just, you know, a community park where you can just see your neighbors in like a non, I don't know, religious or any sort of other way. And so, I don't know, for me, it's just, that really bums me out that we, yeah. <laughs> that we can't get there. Because I think too, it's like the speaker in this story talks about, you know, like, you know, how beautiful Gary was, especially when she's taking the South Shore and there's like pheasant everywhere. There, there are other draws to Gary mm. that kind of had been taken down by the steel mills because the sort of wildlife kind of left. And so it's like, I don't know, I wonder, like, are, you know, are we missing some of these draws that we could potentially have by, you know, making this huge, you know, these huge, like the St. Paul area or over on like Calumet when it's like, you know, condos now, it's like, are, are these missed opportunities that we could have that, mm. you know, this could be a draw for condos, but this could also be like a really awesome park that we could like hang out together, you know? Cause I think especially like in the Banta neighborhood too, it's like, I guess you have the Banta center, but I don't know for me, that's like specific programming. Like when I was there, it's like, I, I wouldn't necessarily go there to like hang out with my neighbors. So it's just like, I don't know. So it's just like we're losing these places that could be draws, but we're choosing, you know, the industrialization, the steel mills, the condos over, you know, the pheasants, the native plant species, the, you know, neutral community spaces. Yeah. I think that's, I don't know, kind of the trouble that we're getting into. Well, and that choice to build U.S. steel where it is was obviously driven by access, you know, to Lake Michigan and, and how they would get their product out and how they would get raw resources in, uh, minus the railroads of which there are many that cross right there for that very reason. 
Um, but that's a huge chunk of the, the lakeshore, which is steel mill. And therefore people don't have access to, and also then cuts off the draw of the lakeshore that is there in Gary for people to still connect to. Um, I think it was when the dunes became the national lakeshore and there were stories that started popping up. Like I think the New York times even did one and the comments by the people who like, so there were tons of visitors right away from sort of everywhere, like, Ooh, a new national park. Let's go check it out. Let's add it to our list of things we can, you know, get a badge from and like check off. And everybody was commenting on, you know, like seeing the like mills on one side and Michigan city's like energy plant on the other. And, you know, for me who, my experience of the dunes has always included that. Like I just, I even actually get um, defensive of it, you know, like, so there's something about it that's problematic. Cause I know that industry has continued to pollute the lake. Um, you know, there are days it's dangerous to get in the water and it has nothing to do with riptides. <laughs> um, and yet I still feel like now a kind of protective quality about it when somebody from New York is going to come in and be like, mm, that's not my, you know, idea of nature. Well, you know, not everybody can have that kind of privilege. So get over yourself. <laughs> um, but anyway, but I do feel like that is that it's true for many people that that big chunk of the lake is occupied in this way that makes even the parts that are still very beautiful and accessible although diminished of much of their wildlife, um, you know, it, it, the city can't, can't, um, recruit mm. towards that. Um, and even if for some reason the mills were just like, I don't know, to be like, fine, we're done. Like that's not recoverable space in any yeah. like short amount of time or maybe even long amount of time. I have no idea what, like, how do you decontaminate <laughs> that? Um, I think it's funny, like, cause Erica, she, her store, her Starbucks store is on Indianapolis Boulevard, but the other Starbucks store is like miles down on Indianapolis Boulevard. So when they answer the phone, um, they say, this is Starbucks in the Marina District. Hmm. And I think that's so funny because <laughs> when I drive her to work in the morning sometimes, it's like there's like the Cargill factory that's right there. So like it like reeks of like sulfur hmm. and there's like the Unilever factory that's right over there too. And it's just like, sometimes it smells like gas and it's just like, I have to like roll all the windows up hmm. and I like shut all the air vents and I'm like breathing into my sweatshirt. I'm like, I can't believe people have houses here because <laughs> it's so terrible. So I just, I don't know. It just, it like tickles me that they're like, this is, you know, Starbucks in the Marina district yes. that smells like sulfur and gas. <laughs> Well, uh, one thing America has going for it always is branding. You know, we know how to brand. Um, oh, my. So what do we make of our storyteller's call for us to take care? Um, yeah, she says our earth is beautiful and we must find a way to keep it. And in keeping it and taking care of the earth, we also take care of each other. And I don't know, for me, that was like, you know, noticing things aside from, you know, the, the popularity of the steel mills and, you know, the industry that's there, but also seeing, you know, the pheasant and the wildlife and the things that are also there. So like, I don't know, kind of 
noticing that there are things that can be a draw outside of these exciting, you know, money-making machines that are just nice to have. And if we, I don't know, appreciate those nice to haves, you know, we're taking care of each other by maintaining our, you know, spaces, our neutral spaces to encounter one another, but also taking care of the earth and not giving it, you know, one more stretch of land to make part of, you know, the steel mills or something like that. But I also wonder too, like, does she believe, like, is her call inclusive of like, like, are you hearing, like, her say, like, hey, let's get rid of the steel mills so the pheasant can come back? Like, I, I'm not necessarily sure, like, what her vision of, like, what that would look like. Yeah, I mean, I would guess, although I really don't know, that it would be about um, more policies that require higher standards of um, cleaning up whatever emissions or making sure any toxicity that you release is not just allowed to go into the lake you know, which I don't think it was that long ago that BP or one of the other oil producers in the area were able to get a special permission to keep putting pollutants directly into the lake. Mm -hmm. So I, I would think that probably given maybe the time she came up in and that kind of um, response, the government response being policies and legislate um, is, is maybe what she's thinking but um but I don't know I mean I do feel like after talking about our first story and really thinking about the I don't I, benefit still seems too strong of a term but the way that that scale of industry created this common experience for the community um it makes me think more deeply about how people in like the coal industry um, and I'm not thinking about the owners I'm thinking about the workers you know they are um, very defensive and um, not wanting to pursue cleaner energy technologies because they understand the impact it's going to have it already has had and and will have even more on their on their communities. And I think of like the kinds of stoicism and personalities that are cultivated by a community that has lived with like black lung and like the real damages that come from that industry. So it's not as if the industry has only been beneficial for them, right? But it's like, but that's, it's ours, it's us. It's like, it's not, it's like in us. And so, um, you know, you're not just taking away like an income, you're really taking away something bigger and deeper. And I think because we have maybe disconnected our economies from our actual environment, like our natural, I don't, I don't always like using that word natural because it's not like concrete isn't natural but the sort of the given world, like we've disconnected our economy from the given um, world of land and lake and sand and tree and bird. Like we haven't forged those common experiences with the non-human world. And so we're just at a loss. I this is nothing, nothing to do with like, you know, what she was, what was she is wanting, except that, um, 
I think her ability to see that the earth is beautiful means that she's had some relationship to it that I think we, uh, it's very easy for us to never have, Mm -hmm. um, if we're not in, uh, more rural areas, if we're not going out into nature and making those choices. Um, so yeah, it it goes back to the idea that we're going to have to be intentional. (laughs) Most of us, many of us, and maybe I'm talking about Americans again, um, are going to have to be really intentional about creating those relationships so that we're drawn to solutions in that, you know, direction. Mm-hmm. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to our sponsors, Asana Yoga Center at asanacenter.com and Roots Market Cafe at rootsmarketcafe.com. We here at Welcome Project Radio love to support our local businesses. And did you enjoy the stories you heard today? If you did, you can find more stories like this one on our website at welcomeproject.valpo.edu and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to start a conversation with us or ask any questions, you can email us at welcomeprojectradio at gmail.com.